Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 234. We're getting there. We're getting really close to the 8-bit number, 255. We're going to have to have some kind of a special. Yeah, some kind of special. We're always looking forward like to do we like try to find excuses to do specials. Well, in terms of in terms of like uh ranking on the bits, like it'll be a while till we get to the 9-bit episode. So, like the 8-bit is special. Yes. Yes. Um so to start off the day uh, or the podcast, um, so I did not get to work on the cat feeder unreminder. Um, well, you you may not have, but it seemed like the Slack channel did. Yes, the Slack channel definitely has lots of ideas and very interested in the project. Um, basically, the reason my excuse though is it was my sixth my uh, my dad's sixtieth birthday, so I had to do lots of drinking and lots of eating with him. So. Unacceptable. You should have all of your projects done. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I'm going to go down the list of kind of the ideas that were thrown out in the Slack channel. Just uh, real quick, why don't you give just like a one second, what is the cat feeder on reminder? Oh, yeah. So for those that decided to pick this episode to be the first episode you've <laughs> ever listened to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, um, the cat feeder on reminder is a hardware device that I want to build and develop that will basically remind me or not remind me when I need to feed the cat. And this is not an IoT device where like it pings your phone or whatever. This is like an indicator on the food or on like the food bin that is like green means feed it's okay to feed the cat and red means don't feed the cat. Something like that. Right. And 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 one of one of the aspects is that there's multiple people involved here. So you don't want double feeding is what you're Yeah, that's at. the biggest problem is cats, especially my cat, will always complain about its food bowl is empty. And the problem is there's multiple people that live in the house and multiple people feeding the cat at different times. Um, and so what I want to do is just have like a timer that resets every like 18 hours or something. And so there's a window that you can feed the cat. And then when you feed the cat, you just press a button on it and it resets the timer for another 18 hours. That way the cat does not get fat or chonky, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Um, the, uh, so it's the cat feeder unreminder, because this way you don't have to worry about the cat, right? And, um, but yeah, a lot of people seem to be very interested in this project, which I'm very happy about. Um, the Stumbler found a 12-hour egg timer. Which work? This is a. This is actually if you if I was going for the simplest solution and cheapest solution, this is the way to go. It's ten bucks on Amazon, free Prime shipping. You feed the you feed the cat and you turn the, the dial all the way to twelve. When it you walk by and the timer's not running anymore, it's safe to feed the cat. It doesn't require any power. Doesn't require any power besides your hand turning the knob. You know, I wonder what the long-term time drift is on something like that. You know, if you had that going for a year, would it would it be would it slowly drift as uh, inaccurate? Well, watches it probably uses a similar mechanism as a watch. Yeah, I mean, it's a mechanical spring system of some sort, right? Yeah. So, I mean, eventually those uh, wear in some way. So, I would think that. But uh, you know, that would be interesting to to take a guess. Like, what does it wear longer or shorter? Probably shorter. Probably because you're putting energy into it for longer, and the the spring probably gets weaker. So I would think it would get shorter. I don't 
know if a softer spring would make the clock tick slower or faster. I don't know. I don't know. Argue no. about it, Slack channel. Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually a really good solution. If anyone's listening is like, oh, I need a cat feeder unreminder right away. Go do that route. Um, but the whole purpose of this project is to kind of build something and learn a new embedded skill, which in this case is going to be like low power. Um, so I'm not going to go that route. But thank you for finding that the stumbler. Actually, there's one thing I'm like an egg timer setup, but that lasted longer than 30 minutes would be perfect, right? Um, Eric McFall uh, came up with the idea of using e ink display for a persistent display, which is a brilliant idea because they don't use any power um, except when you're switching the display. And um, this way, you could act you could actually put like a clock on it or a timer. And so whenever you walk by it, you can see that it's actually still running. Because that's actually one thing if you just had one LED on the device that told you it was okay to feed. Well, if the battery ran out, you, you would never feed your cat because the LED would never light up. <laughs> because the, the cat feeder unreminder is the, the grand arbiter of feeding the cat. Right? Yes. Well, that's, that's the goal with the project, right? Right, right. Uh, so I'm going to look through my parts bin after the podcast uh, for an e-ink display. If I do have one, then I'm probably going to use one. Um, I'm going to look up the power consumption um, to make sure it's the, the quintessent power draw is really low. They should be. I mean, they're kind of designed for that environment. That's the, that's the purpose. Yeah. Uh, Tony W. had the idea of using a jack-in-a-box, which I actually really liked, except it might scare the cat if it goes off. <laughs> so the whole purpose is for you to feed the cat, but then the cat gets so afraid of the food that it just never eats. Never eats ever again. <laughs> um, and then last episode, we came up with the idea of using flip dot displays, like as an indicator, just using one dot, which is a, a flip dot display is an electromechanical indicator, which one side of it is painted in a fluorescent color. Other side's like usually black. And so that you use a little, you use a little solenoid to kind of flip the display over so that you can see uh, what state it is in. Um, so DJ has been working with flip dot displays for law for quite a while. And he says they're actually kind of power hungry in short bursts. And depending on the size, it could be like four amps for five microseconds, which is or milliseconds. Yeah, milliseconds, which is it's not a lot of actual like joules, but you do have to like like if this is a low power system, you'd actually have to charge up something like a supercapacitor to be able to discharge that really quickly. Yeah, a little coin cell battery is not going to give you four amps. No, well, not instantaneous. For we basically, what's your instantaneous amperage, which is going to be like what one C probably on a coin cell, which is going to be like three hundred milliamps maybe. Oh, I don't even think they do that much. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't exactly know what, what this, it is, but that seems high. Yeah. What? Well, the uh, most lithium can do one C, but I don't know what a coin cell does. Does. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, bum, was it Bombled Monk? Uh, Bumbled Monk. Bumbled Monk. Okay. He said to go solar, and I think this is actually the best idea. Um, so I think combining e ink with solar. With a little, little tiny, you know, like Sleepy B microcontroller is probably where I'm going to go with this, and then uh, making it fully solar powered, so like no battery. Oh, nice, yeah. And so, and actually put on like a rechargeable cell, so it has to make sure that it's powered up enough to flip the display and that uh, kind of stuff. Okay, here's the problem with that. 
Uh, I mean, that's super cool. And, and I actually think you should go that, that route. The problem with that is uh, that opens up like feature creep beyond belief. Yeah, because like, you could it you does. could go super capacitors with power management ICs and things like that for like gathering, you know, harvesting data. I'm not I mean power and things like that. And uh, and if you went that route, then you could go with a flip dot display uh, because you could oh. like have timers and like charge up <laughs> over a period of time. You know, like so the, it allows for a lot of feature creep that you initially like set hard boundaries on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Now, that's actually a really funny comment because Derek said, does it count as feature creep if the project is still doing the same thing but is way more complicated in how it accomplishes that said goal? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's not... So feature creep is you adding more features. The feature set's still the same thing. We're not adding anything extra. It's more of a... It's it's the way of going about it is more complicated, maybe. Man, that is some politician bullshit right there on getting your way around feature creep. <laughs> <laughs> we have to define what is means. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I I think honestly, I think the uh, the solar panel idea is cool, especially with the idea of like not having a power source on it like a battery you know yeah basically you have to put it together and then shine a flashlight on it and that's how you bring up your circuit yeah nice so i've never done solar before um i've used e-inks before but never uh in a product just kind of like one-off kind of things um so this is gonna be a lot of fun i think um and I'll probably use like an EFM8 Sleepy B, I think, is what I'm going to end up using. So, um, so e-ink displays draw very, very little power when they're just static. They draw all their power when changing, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've never really dealt with one. Um, do you have any kind of gut feel as to what their power draw generally is when they're changing? Is it significant? or it's No, it's not. It's still it's still pretty good. It's still really low, and they change really slowly. They don't have a really high refresh rate. Right, that's why they work well for for books and things like that. Yeah, for Kindles. So it's gonna be interesting because um, yeah, I just never tried something like this before, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. Probably three D print a little box. Because of course. Yeah, because of course. Have a big feed me button on it. What size uh, e-ink displays do you have? I don't know. I have to go through the parts bin. Got it. Who sells those? Or, uh, like, I, I'm assuming you can find them at uh, like SparkFun and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I think SparkFun sells some. Adafruit sells some. There's some suppliers out there, too. I think DigiKey and Mauser also have, have parts. Um, if you're actually going to build them into a product, I would talk to like the manufacturers of oh, the of displays course. directly. Because... Um, Basically, like any distributor, they're pretty pricey. What kind of communication? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming if they're so slow, can you just like do SPI? Yeah. Yeah, it's usually SPI. Yeah, and you can um, you, you can probably pretty quickly and easily uh, address any dot on the ink, right? Yeah, and I, I one I've used in the past was Icewar C as well. So most of them have multiple different ways you can communicate with them. Mm. Um, I did use one in the past that was like an old character display. Mm. Was it what Hayachi? What's the name of that protocol? It's a standard like 16 by two 
character display. Just a lot of translation layers in your code to make it work, right? Well, they have their own built-in... Uh, yeah, Hitachi HD44780 LCD controller, which is like people have cloned that out the wazoo. <laughs> and um, that's like when you have like you have like four or eight parallel bits mm. and then a control signal and a clock and mm, a command yeah. line, a command signal line. Um, but a lot of LCD controllers will have that as kind of like a way like, oh, you can also use this LCD controller to upgrade old equipment. Right. Because old equipment uses this protocol. Mm. Um, I would probably not use that. I probably would use Spy or a uh, I2C. Well, okay, but <clears throat> initially you were not going to put a brain box on this thing. But yeah. if you're going with an e-ink display, you're going to have to. Yeah, it, it's mainly because of the solar I kind of want to try to see, can I get a screen to run like that on, on solar? You know, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you, want, you want to really, hey, this isn't feature creep. Hang on. This is not feature creep because of your rule that you made up earlier because the end result still remains the same. Implement writing to an e-ink display without a processor. <laughs> just have it, have it all in logic, and after a timer hits, it would just... The logic is already hard coded to spit out whatever it needs to spit out in order for the ink display. Oof! <laughs> this board would be huge, It'd be ginormous. Yeah, but if you use low uh, low power logic actually, gates, you, you, you might could be able probably to pull that actually out. burn it into a ROM. Yeah, and then have a claw a a decade count or a counter. I don't know if a decade counter could do it, but have a counter that you you tr you you would have like the old idea we had, which is basically a counter that counts up. Mm -hmm. When it hits an overflow bit, it hits the uh, the ROM, and then it has a clock that just spits out all the ROM on it, on the addresses, and that probably would work. Uh, see, I'm 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 saying implement it entirely in discrete logic. <laughs> so you would have to basically write out your entire uh, the SPI transfer. Yeah, yeah, the SPI transfer, and then reverse. Basically, go back and turn that back into logic. Yeah, yeah, and then and, and then you'd have to you'd have to create a clock circuit that would clock that out properly. <laughs> you could do that in FPGA a lot easier. Yeah, but that but like that was one of your original stipulations is you didn't want to have a brain box in this. Yeah, but <laughs> but I like we, this. <laughs> but we could combine. We could just go solar and so not do the brain box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think the e-ink display and a solar panel is, like, honestly the best way to go. Yeah, because then you can have a graphic of, like, a cat's mouth open and it's pointing in its mouth <laughs> when it's time to feed. Right, yeah, the, the important things. The memes. <laughs> All right, so you got to, I guess you got to go search for some parts now. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Also, uh, Bumble Monk was suggesting uh, indoor lighting solar panels, which that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and apparently, like Sanyo or I think he said Panasonic bought them out or okay. bought those that line out. Um, yeah, they're designed for indoor lighting. It'd be cool. I wonder uh, what uh, what exactly does that mean? That they're designed for indoor light, like they're they're, they're tuned, I guess, for light? whatever indoor lighting frequency, because it's not the entire spectrum, like right, right. like sunlight is. Yeah. So. Huh. 
Huh, okay. Maybe maybe they have less. Um, uh, maybe the glass is not as bulletproof, you know, because oh, if maybe. they're just going to be used indoors. Cool. So what have you been up to, Stephen? So uh, I've got I've got actually an interesting question that maybe you can help out with uh, because I have a I have a design that I'm working on right now that has some a, a, li- a fair bit of uniqueness to some footprints on a PCB. So I'm migrating a, some uh, a product or or some. No, I shouldn't say migrating. I'm trying out uh, moving from tactile switches to snap domes on a uh, on, a, on one of our products because I want to. If if I can move away from tactile switches, we can actually save a good bit of money and save a bit of heartache because one of our products has like, I think ninety three tack switches on it. Um, which these tax switches, unfortunately, their data sheet calls out a failure rate on them, and we've seen a failure rate that's like fifty x what they call out on the on the data sheet on the, for the tax switches. Uh, well, these switches have uh, integrated LEDs, and the LEDs okay. go bad on them. But I'm just considering them because it's a it's an all in one package. Yeah. To me, it's a tax switch with an LED. Yeah. Oh. That's you know what's interesting is um, back when. I worked with dynamic perception. This is mm-hmm. before Macrofab. Is we had uh, like you know what what's the standard tack switch like a six millimeter by six millimeter tack switch? Yeah, about yeah. Um, but these were a slightly longer stem, so they could mm-hmm. poke through the the product uh, casing. Those had an insane failure rate as well. Hmm. So I, I think there's something there. I don't know what it is, but maybe. Yeah. Well, and, and so the thought here is like, okay, well, our pick and place has to drop a gazillion of these per board. Uh, you know, they, they're they not the smallest thing. So when, when you look at them on a reel, we d- you don't get 10,000 of these on a reel. You get like 300 of them on a reel. I was about reel. to say 300 is about yeah, what I so think they are. If you have 93 per unit, every fourth unit that goes through the pick and place, you have to stop the machine and, and replace the reel, right? Wait, uh, you have a product that has 93 tax switches on it? Yeah. Jeebus. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a matrix, you know, uh, trigger sequencer. Okay. Uh, so, uh, like, I mean, it shows time in a grid, and you can like activate things based off of time and stuff. So, uh, regardless, yeah, it's got a bunch of tax switches. We've noticed failure rates that that cause heartache. Let's put it that way. So uh, we were we we were looking at hey maybe we go snap dome buttons which. You, what's cool about snap domes is you kind of define their feel. You can say like, it, "I want this many grams to press it and this many grams to release it," worth of force that is. Um, and then uh, I also want it to have this much throw. Like I want it to move twenty thousandths of an inch when I press it. And so we can actually take the tack switches that we already have, measure those things, and then have someone make a snap dome that's exactly like that. Um, so I found a company, actually, surprisingly enough, I was just searching for companies, and, it, and I ended up finding one online and then looking up where they are, and they're like an hour north of me, uh, which is kind of cool. Field trip so, time. You know, field trip, but COVID is like, nope, uh, mail them all of our stuff. I, I, would, I would totally go up there and, and meet with them, which would be really cool. But, uh, but regardless, when it comes to like shipping them things, like I ship them one of our products for them to like touch it and feel it and, uh, you know. It takes a day to get there. Uh, regardless, 
so I got I, I, I got samples in. I feel these snap domes. Everything feels great. So I'm cool. The the unique thing about these snap domes, it's uh, the company's name is Snaptron, and they do the series of snap dome that I'm looking at is the BL series. It's like a four legged uh, snap dome that has a hole in the middle. Uh, that hole means you can put an LED underneath the snap dome. Uh, or in the case that I have, you can actually put a hole through the PCB and put a rear mount LED uh, to shine through the hole, which is nice. And the reason why I want to go with rear mount LED is because the um, you still have to have an actuator, like some kind of cap that fits on top of the snap dome. Like the, the user's not actually going to physically touch the the, the dome, dome itself there's going to be some plastic piece in between and if there was an led on the top of the board i would have to design like a pocket in the rear side of the actuator such that it doesn't just you know you don't just bash into the top of an led every time you press a button yeah, yeah. so that's why i like the idea of a rear mount led uh so it can shine through the hole in the pcb and then shine through the hole in the snap dome and you know then the user can see it Okay, all great. Like, I've been, you know, I've been investigating this and researching and designing around it, but I've run into an issue here. So get this. The snap domes themselves have a hole of about 0.1 inch um, in the middle of it. 100 mil, okay. 100 mil. So the, the, we have a rear mount LED that we've been using for quite a while that we like now, and it has a hole... Uh, in the PCB that is 90 thou. So difference of 10 thou there. The requirement for the, the PCB footprint, uh, all of the, everything is defined except for the copper that's inside the hole. And, and what I mean by that is if you look up the footprint on Snaptron, they suggest that the copper that is, you know, inside the, the hole of the snap dome just be less than the whole the dome of the hole diameter. Snap. Right. So, in other words, my copper has to be less than 0.1 inch, but the hole in the PCB is 0.09. So I have a difference of 10 thousandths of an inch there. Well, the problem with that is, is I start to get into an issue where I'm violating all of my DRC rules of copper to hole, you know, um, what is it? Clearance. Yeah. Uh, so even if I give it like 5 thousandths of an inch, that's not a whole lot, you know, in terms of like drill hit uh, positioning and things like that. And then the actual uh, copper, uh, what do they call it? Um, the, I guess, aperture size is what, what they would call it. Like the actual hit, if the tolerances are all off, then I can get a little bit funky on that. So one thought I had was, well, instead of worrying about all of that, what if I made the hole that the backlight LED shine through what if I just made that a plated through hole right like just make it a full-on plated through hole and who cares as long as the center diameter is you know what I needed is 0.09 inches which would totally work the only problem is I have a rear mount LED on the other side of the board and now the annular ring on the back side of the board has to be so tiny to allow for the pads of that LED that now I'm violating clearances over there too so I get into this issue where it's like, okay, how small of an annular ring can I do on the backside? And I was looking up some PCB vendors, and they suggest, uh, what is it, 6 mil min minimum annular ring. So you would double that, and so I'm already violating. I can't do 
you can't that. do that. I can't do that. It doesn't work. So the hole doesn't need to be plated. It doesn't matter if it's uh, if it's not plated. But I'm violating my clearances on the top side of the board to to try to make this work. The, so the, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the question the question here is is to everyone in PCB land. Can I just put a surface mount pad that is a big circle on the top side and put a drill hit in the middle of it that's not plated? Yes, you can. You do have to call out to the PCB manufacturer, though, for that, saying that because I'm assuming on the bomb side you don't have an SMD pad or it does go through copper on the back. So it's, Well, on the back side I have, I have the LED pads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're going to have to basically say... You, uh, the best way to do this is to have an assembly drawing to go with your PCB, mm-hmm. and you say this hole is not plated, because right. a lot of times is <laughs> no really I'm serious this is yeah not I'm serious plated. <laughs> not plated even though it goes through copper do not plate yeah this hole right but yeah you won't run into um, copper board edge clearance issues because usually that's in regards to when they're actually routing. Uh, the board edge with it's with a different machine instead of a drill hit machine because they're going to hit this with a you know a hundred mil drill, right? Well, okay, so so here's the thing, okay, and 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 I was thinking that is the solution because if you look at the way a PCB is made, the steps they apply copper and then they do drilling. So if you apply copper as like a just a big circular pad and then tell someone to drill it, there will be copper on the top and there will be a non-plated hole. They just have to, you know, process it such that it doesn't get plated later on, which yep. that's fine. Uh, and and I'm I don't even really care too much if there's a little bit of a uh, small bit of a burr or or flashing because of the drilling, which there probably shouldn't be anyway. Uh, so I think that's the best. It does kind of mean that I have to do extra work every time we order this board to just absolutely 100% make sure that they don't plate that. Because yeah. uh, then uh, it might mean that my reverse mount LED doesn't fit in the hole that it needs to fit in if they do plate it, Correct. or the, or you violate a bunch of other things. Well, the if they do plate it, they will drill it larger, and then because the, usually when you provide a drill, a, your oh, it's finished hole fender, size. Yeah, it's finished hole size, so. It would still fit with the plating, except that it would short out your LED pads. That's the problem, because the internal pad of the snap dome on the top side is either power or ground, effectively, right? And then the LED is going to have something that would be not so great to short to. Yeah. Uh, so, like, we're, we're dealing with... There's a lot of things that have to go right for this to go right. And the and I spent oh my God I spent a long time today trying to figure out like is there a way around this? I mean honestly the 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 one way around it is what I mentioned earlier is abandon the idea of a rear mount LED and put a top mount 0402 LED in the pads. And and Parker's shaking his head here. I, I'm shaking my head too because like I don't like that idea. Mainly I because of what I was mount. mentioning with the actuator. Because uh, the the actual LED, if I were to put it on the top side of the board, the LED will sit proud above the snap dome, especially when yeah. the snap dome is depressed, such that my actuator would have to have a pocket for the LED. Ah, no, that that no, that sounds like a lot more work. If I put the LED as a reverse mount through the board, then the bottom of the actuator that touches the snap dome can be flat and can just be a, a stud effectively, which that is significantly easier than dealing with other things like i think that they um the 
the LED in the on the top side of a snap dome is fine if you say have like a sticker membrane that goes over it and it has a clear spot for the LED to poke through because mm-hmm. you know that's fine for like a control panel surface but my my application is significantly different than that so yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how this turns out yeah yeah it'll be it'll be interesting for sure because uh, I mean if this if this works, it'll save us a lot of problems and, and make manufacturing a ton easier, which is Can, something I've been on a kick of with, with so they, recently. So I'm looking at the pictures of this, and yeah. it's basically the snap dome, and then they have an adhesive square that goes over it. And then, because yeah. these are not reflowed or no. pasted. Nope. So do you have to have another machine put them? Because it has to come in after pick and place and after reflow. Actually, here's the thing that's really cool. This company, Snaptron, they uh, you send them your entire PCB layout, and they'll create what they call a sticker, and it has all of this the oh, things on it. Oh, and you apply that after the entire thing's done. It comes out and of the And it's got reflow. cutouts for all your parts it's, and shit. It has, yeah. And and they, they create... No, get this. This is, this is pretty sexy. They create a jig for you that has... Um, uh, guide pins. Okay, pins. You flip your board upside down and push it down onto the sticker, and it's oh. pressure pressure uh, sensitive adhesive. Yeah, PSA. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, like you just push it down on, and all of your snap domes are right where they need to go. Yeah. So so what I've been trying to uh, not trying to I've already sold it to the to the rest of the guys at the company. I was like, look, we could take ninety three switches, ninety three part numbers, and make them one. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) We don't even have to consider the each dome an individual part number. The sticker itself. The sticker is a part number. Yeah. 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 So it makes life a lot easier if Um, if it works out. If it if this works out, it would be cool if you could delve into like the economics of it too. Yeah. Um, If possible, I know it's company secret stuff, maybe, but it would be cool to have some numbers that going forward uh, with this because. Um, I've always seen these before, but always in like the individual style. Yeah. Uh, like they, they show on their website. And um, actually, the funny thing is Atari 2600 controllers are the regular snap domes with the adhesive PSA sticker over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not a full sheet. Like someone individually put them on there back in, you know, the <laughs> 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. But they still work. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, the longevity is there. You know, okay, yeah. So these these particular ones, um, you can you can order them in different grades, and and like the low grade ones are more than a million presses, and I think there's there's some coding you can get on them to get ten million presses. Which I mean, we don't need ten million presses. Uh, but the one thing though is, Parker's actually you're exactly right. You don't reflow them. You don't paste them because they actually physically move. Like the legs are in one position when they're not being pressed, and when you press them, they spread out. So they're they're physically scraping on the PCB itself, which means that your whatever your um, gosh, what do you call it? Uh, finish on the on the copper is matters a whole lot. So uh, you know, hassle is going to give you very few presses. It's going to fail. Enig is kind of a little bit better, but hard gold is how you get to ten million presses. So you do have to treat your PCB. Uh, you do have to spend a little bit more on your PCB than getting the hard gold option on those pads. And that's actually one thing is 
you'd also have to specify that to your vendor because a lot of times when you just say hard gold they look for like card, card edge. edge connectors yeah and yeah. you probably don't have one and they'll be like okay where do you want us to put that right yep it, it this this is one of those solutions that, like, it sounds really great, but it comes with not necessarily a price tag, but a, but a price tag in terms of, like, uh, babysitting. There's more characteristics about your board uh, that yeah, you yeah. have to... But, you know, it could make things a hell of a lot easier. We actually we implemented a, a test in our manufacturing process where... Bef- so, so typically in our process, we, we boards go on our pick-and-place machine and we do the surface mount, and then they immediately move on to through-hole processing. Well, because we noticed issues with these particular switches, we implemented a full test in between there, uh, those two steps, because it's nice to be able to um, fix any broken switches before you know, moving on and going further with boards. So, I mean, even, even in just labor cost and, and parts sitting on the shelf you know we're we're adding that so you know i could i'll talk to i'll talk to the owner of the company and you know i probably can't share like numbers but i bet you i can share percentages of yeah you know, are, we're, are we saving 15 percent or are we spending 15 percent more yeah and uh it volumes would work too yeah well like i can, you, you I, can yeah, I, like, I know i can build certainly share like a hundred of these a month or a thousand of these or whatever yeah and so that people can get the idea of like does it work out you know, you know what's one, one thing that's really cool. Uh, so, before I got quotes for the Snap Domes, or even before I got samples from this company, um, I actually took one of the tack switches and I was like, I, I want to figure out the characteristics of this tack switch such that I can tell them, hey, a guy, you know, guide them and say like, I want something within this range in terms of feel and throw and things like that. So the way I got it, um, the way I figured it out is I took out a scale. And I, uh, we have a we have a pretty nice scale at work for for counting. Um, you know, you can put like yeah, little 10, parts, ten parts in, measure how much ten is, and then throw a bazillion in there. It'll tell you how many parts are in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I took that scale and I put a tack switch on it, and then I made a I got a like a a big steel ruler and I made a lever off of it and put a a, a pivot. That was on a table somewhere. I, I don't know. And when I say put a, t- a pivot, it was probably like a stack of books with a pencil on it or something like that. And then I, I had known weights that I, would, that I would slide across the ruler and slide them closer and closer uh, to where the tack switch was on the uh, scale until I heard the tack switch click and then measure that, uh, whatever that was, and then slide them away until I heard it unclick. And I could measure the force that it would take to push the thing down and the force to release it. And what was awesome was I gave these actual tech switches to this company and they have like a force gauge meter, like a CNC one that goes. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, hey, out of, out of curiosity, how close was the numbers that I actually got? And I got within like 2% of the actual number. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> did you tell them how you did it? No, no, I didn't. But I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll uh, you know as as I go along, I'll I don't know, I'll share whatever I can. Cool. Uh, so uh, you know, kind of in in relation to what I was talking about earlier, like changing some manufacturing things. I so in the last week, uh, I designed. Well, okay, so I had a problem at work. I got pissed off enough about this problem 
that I actually designed an entire product, uh, wrote the code for it, and built 15 of them within one week. Just That's one of the things that I, I love about kind of being in an engineering job where you have some flexibility with, with things. Um, if, if, first of all, for management out there, if you ever want an engineer to like perform, like really, really get some stuff done, just give them a problem that pisses them off and like <laughs> you will get results immediately. So, so is that what Bill Gates said? I wouldn't be surprised. Is he, he likes hiring lazy engineers cause they always find a solution to, Oh yeah, they'll they, they put in more work just to not work. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so get this: um, in in synthesis world, there's there's a particular control scheme called one volt per octave, which is so so most control voltages that you use to actually like adjust parameters on your um, synthesizers are not necessarily calibrated. I mean, they're, they're calibrated as in like you, you, you put something in and you know something's going to happen, but there's a few of them where you put something in a very known signal and you want a very known result out. Like take, for instance, you press a key on a keyboard, you want it to play that frequency. And then you go up one octave, you want it to play exactly double the frequency before if you want something that you have like a known amount in and a known amount out, you typically have to calibrate that or you just buy ridiculously expensive components that are already doing that. Right. Uh, 99% of the time it's cheaper to calibrate uh, yourself. So specifically when it comes to one volt per octave, anything where you're dealing in octaves, you have to calibrate stuff. <clears throat> and typically the, the way the calibration scheme goes is you turn on your device, you measure the frequency uh, set it to something that is, you know, reasonable, uh, and and then you inject reasonable. A, well, reasonable <laughs> as in like a low frequency that's like a known like calibration standard. Like fifty five hertz is typically one. Sixty five hertz is is one. You typically go low because you're gonna try to calibrate upwards because most people okay. are not going sub audio. They're going higher. So you go at a low frequency and you start moving upwards. Um. So, so you, you put it at one of these frequencies and then you put known signals in and you say, hey, did I re reach my, you know, if I put one volt in, did I double my frequency out? Uh, you, and, and chances are you didn't, you know, you're low or you're high. So what you do is you, you, you put in a known number of frequencies, like say you, you put in, you start with zero volts in and then you go four volts up, you should expect a certain frequency on the output. And if you don't have that, you adjust a trim pot and you go back down to zero volts. The thing about that trim pot that is interesting is because we're talking about the world of exponentials here, zero volts isn't a fixed thing. So it's not like you're starting at zero and adjusting what happens at four volts. If you change that trim pot, you're tipping a curve on an exponential. So you've adjusted both the four volts and the zero volt position. So you start at zero, go to four, adjust, come back to zero, and then you have to reset zero because you're not back at the frequency that you originally wanted. That's where the problem comes in. Because with most musical instruments, there's a knob somewhere on the device that allows you to change the frequency. 99% of the time, these are not precision knobs. These knobs uh, cover a really, really wide span. And so 
the traditional way to calibrate is to just take that knob and barely nudge it so you're back to where you want to be at, at zero volts. Well, it's a giant pain in the ass, and most of the time you spend almost all your time just barely tapping that knob to get it back to where you want to be. Yeah, back to zero. I was dealing with a product uh, two weeks ago that I was just like pulling my freaking hair out because I would go to calibrate, I'd put in three volts or four volts and go up, and then come back down to zero, and I'd have to just finely tune that that knob. And I got to the point where I was like, there's a better way to do this. We're going to do it different here. So I went and designed an entire module that is literally just a processor with an encoder and a 14-bit DAC on it. And into that DAC, I put a 2.048 volt um, reference voltage. So that 14-bit uh, DAC has the ability to go from uh, just a little bit over negative one volt to just over one volt. So it has a two volt span and that's it. <clears throat> the encoder has a little press button on it where I can change scales. And basically all the module does is I can uh, adjust the output by either one millivolt, 10 millivolts, or 100 millivolts per click on the uh, encoder. encoder. And so what I've done is I... is my calibration, my actual calibration standard that I use, what it's a it's another module. It can step one volt at a time. You know, it can go from negative four, negative seven to positive seven volts in one volt increments. Basically, I plug my new module into that one, and it allows me to go from negative seven to positive seven in one millivolt resolution uh, steps. So now instead of having to like try to barely tap this analog potentiometer to get things into into play i can just go back down to my zero volts put this put my new module into one millivolt resolution and just click it and i'm there uh it's like so much faster and it's actually way more accurate because for the most part we're not like reading frequencies on a frequency counter we actually have peterson tuners which are strobe tuners they so they actually spin up and so you can you can determine if you're doubling your frequency based off of the rotation of this little um, spinning dial so the way you the way you actually set a frequency on that thing is you you turn a knob until the thing stops rotating and then you know you're at that frequency well with my little thing i can i can spin it and make make this peterson tuner dead nuts stop and then i can go up a couple of octaves uh, and see if it's turning to the right, then I'm a little sharp. If it's turning to the left, I'm a little flat. I can adjust my trimmer and then tap my little mo uh, calibration module and get it all back to rock solid. And so, like, instead of, like, jacking with knobs on my unit, you can now just basically have the unit sitting on the table away from you, and you can calibrate it separately. Oh, that's super <laughs> and cool. And all it took was me getting pissed off about turning knobs and be like, God damn it, I can't do this. I, I bet you <laughs> that week you spent working on it and you probably didn't spend the whole week doing it oh no no not at all is you will save that time next week oh yeah 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 well and it's funny because uh one of the one of the reasons why i went so fast on it is because we actually have a product that's going into production right now that could use it like right this minute in fact i gave a handful of modules yesterday to the to the tester and i'm developing a product right now that will be ready in a few weeks that also could use it. So it's just like, okay, this is, I don't know. And that's not, none of this is like, you know, toot my horn or anything like that. But it's, I think it's just a funny story of like, you get an engineer oh, pissed off story. enough, you just, 
they'll fix it. <laughs> no, it's, it, and you, in one week, you just got it done. Yeah. And, and, uh, luckily the, uh, the firmware is super easy on it. You know, it's just, yeah. it's an encoder that has to write things based off of clicks. So actually, you know, that's a little bit of like a, you know, cheers. I'm holding up a beer for, for STM 32. Like they have timers on there that have just encoder mode and it takes care of all the quadrature and everything like that. And oh, that's cool. You literally like if there's, you just, you write to a register and it's like you went up or you went down and it just tells you, you know, it's super nice. So it makes doing encoders and stuff like that really, really easy. Cool. I think that's going to wrap up this episode. I think it will. Yeah. So that was the MacFab engineering podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolan and Stephen Craig. Later everyone. Take it easy.